Are we saving the bees or are they on the brink of extinction? I'm Valentina and welcome to my life without plastic. Hello, hello, my honeybees. Welcome back to another beautiful day in my life without plastic. <laughs> so, last week we spoke about endangered species, and as promised, we're going to talk about the bees today. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think that it's very important to continue diving deeper into this one specific little creature and just kind of understand how significant. Are bees really for us, for our ecosystem, and perhaps for our economy? <laughs> so today it's all about the bees. And we just actually had World Bee Day um, last Thursday, and I thought it would be fun to explore this a little more. Um, I have to be honest, going into this, I definitely underestimated the amount of information there would be out there about the bees. I thought it's, you know, just another cute little creature that some people are afraid of, and people say it's important for the environment or whatever. But oh boy, was I for a little run there. Um, definitely, I found so much that I can't wait to really tell you about it. So I can tell you that personally, I feel like we've been talking about saving the bees forever. Like it's been an ongoing battle. I've heard it for such a long time. So I think it's one of those things that I genuinely ask myself, where do we stand with this? You know, have we made any effort? Because it's something we've talked about for so long. Has anyone listened and taken action? Like, where do we stand? Or are we just not doing anything about it and, you know, letting an entire ecosystem die? That's also another possibility. Well, you're going to have to stay tuned until the end to find out. <laughs> so before we start talking about the issue at hand, I actually wanted to take a little look in, into the history of bees. You know, how long have they been around? How have ancient cultures treated them? And all that good stuff. So let's take at first a look into their evolution. The ancestors of bees were actually wasps in the family called Crabronidae. Crabronidae? Or some scientific name like that. So they were basically predators of other insects. So now we love the little honeybee and all of the other bees that just drink sweet flower and plant nectar. But back in the days, their ancestors actually ate other insects, so they were predators. Um, the switch from insect prey to pollen may have resulted from the consumption of prey insects, which were flower visitors and were particularly covered with pollen. So, you know, when they were fed to the wasp, um, the wasp kind of like got addicted to them in a way, uh, to that flavor. But let's be honest, if you had to choose between eating a fly and a tasty little nectar from a plant, I think the choice is obvious. <laughs> I don't think we can argue much with the bee there. So, um, you know, there were other pollinators before the bees, like the beetles, for example. Uh, so the bees were definitely not the first ones to pollinate flowers. They didn't discover anything new here. However, the novelty was that 
the bees are specialized as pollination agents with behavioral and physical modifications that specifically enhance pollination and are the most efficient pollinating insects in that. So while they were not the first, they significantly evolved into becoming the most efficient and the most significant ones of all. Um, so in the process of what is called co-evolution, flowers developed floral rewards in a way, such as nectar and longer tubes, and bees, on the other hand, developed longer tongues to extract the nectar. So as you see, they kind of co-evolved, right? Um, they adjusted to one another and to that method because it was so efficient that over time they just kept on adjusting to it and improving it. Um, so I think that's a, something very incredible to keep in mind that it's not that only bees evolved into being pollinating, you know, agents or insects, whatever you want to call them. Um, I think agent sounds cute. It's like they have a job, you know, like they're pollinating agents. They wake up in the morning. They have a certain number of flowers to visit. So, you know, it's a legit job. <laughs> so I think that makes them even cuter. But, you know, I think it's also important to see how because of that relationship, plants have evolved too. Not just bees as a species, but also plants were affected in their evolution. So humans have kept bees and bee colonies um, for millennia. So beekeepers collect honey, beeswax, propolis, pollen, and royal jelly from hives. And bees are also kept to pollinate crops and to produce bees for sale to other beekeepers, right? So kind of, um, you know, reproducing them. Um, depictions of human collecting honey from wild bees date back to 15,000 years ago. Now, I think that it's incredible to just think about that long time frame. We're talking about 15,000 years ago is when we have discovered some sort of a sign that humans have started using bees for producing different products or even like interacting with wild bees for the production of, of you know, of some of their naturally occurring products. So, um, for example, one case it are the Egyptians, and I think like they come across um, a lot of times when we talk about, you know, historic and ancient cultures and how they've interacted with different things. So actually, there is Egyptian art around 4,500 years ago that shows the domestication of bees. Simple hives and smoke were used. Jars of honey were found in the tombs of pharaohs, such as Tutankhamun, a very famous one. Um, you know, so this only goes to show that domestication of bees is nothing new. We've done it for a very long time. It's been recorded through art, through books, even um, famous philosophers have spoken about it. We see it whenever we discover artifacts from ancient cultures. So the relationship between humans and uh, bees is a very long one, uh, as you can see. You know, those are not the only historic findings. So Egyptians are not the only ancient culture that has um, interacted with bees one way or another. Archaeologists have found traces of beeswax on ancient pottery in what is now Turkey, suggesting that humans have been keeping honeybees 
for nearly 9,000 years. Experts believe that farmers may have domesticated wild bees to gather honey and wax for medicines and food since evidence of beekeeping was later found through Europe and North Africa near early agricultural sites. And there are so many other cases. For example, another one that I found was that um, at Tel Rehov in Israel's Jordan Valley, 30 clay cylinders were unearthed in 2010. They held ancient honeybees, but not as traps. So they, the insects lived inside the containers. A fact um, backed up by tiny doors and the fossils of different individuals and lives in, in different life stages. Among the remains were worker bees, drones, and as well as, you know, uh, PRP and larvae. So we're going to talk about the different stages of the bees in a little bit, but it's very interesting to see that even in those ancient artifacts that are found, they found bees in those different stages. The hives were around 3,000 years old and oddly within a courtyard inside a dense urban area. Bees can get nasty, especially during, you know, routine honey removal. So the reason behind the risky location is not fully understood. But perhaps honey was so precious that the location kept the factory safe from theft or natural damage. So, you know, that was very interesting. Um, the bee species was actually also different from those found in today, you know, in Israel today. Instead, the fossils closely matched Turkish bees. The farm was the first archaeological evidence of beekeeping. Also, the foreign species, probably imported for better quality, and the elaborate courtyard showed that the practice was already highly advanced in Israel 3,000 years ago. Honeybees are not endangered, mainly because they're globally distributed and primarily managed by beekeepers. So when we, you know, last week we talked about endangered species, honeybees are definitely not listed as endangered because we have, you know, such a controlled domestication that we keep on the species living and, and going on. However, that does not mean that they don't face issues, right? And we're going to go into that a little bit later, but I wanted to make sure to point out that they're not technically endangered. But, you know, they're important pollinators and also honeybees are actually not really native to the United States. They were brought over from Europe by colonizers in the 17th century for uh, to use for honey and beeswax. So eventually some of the managed bees escaped and formed wild honeybee colonies, but the majority of honeybees in North America are still managed by humans. So um, let's take a look at their behavior and their life cycle a little bit before we go into understanding more how, you know, their extinction could pose a problem to, to our lives. Because honeybee colonies fluctuate, it's hard to pinpoint exact population numbers. Queens, for example, usually live between two and three years, and rarely more than five years. Workers typically only live a few weeks to a few months. Also, a fun fact, what we call worker bees, those are actually all female. I didn't know that. So basically, we have a queen bee, right? Then we have worker bees who are also female. Of course, women doing all the work again. <laughs> I'm 
kidding, but you know, not really. I mean, it's a queen bee, it's worker bees who are also female, and then we have male drones, that's what they're called, drones, who live between four and eight weeks. And a drone is basically a male honeybee. Unlike the female worker bee, drones do not have stingers. They gather they don't gather nectar or pollen and are also unable to feed without assistance from worker bees. Uh, drones only role is really to mate with an unfertilized queen. That's all. So, you know, don't they have a good, there's a female worker bee doing all the work, working super hard to get all of the nectar and then on top of that feeding them as well. I would say that's a good life. That's a good life to have. <laughs> so each colony typically consists of one single reproductive queen, anywhere from 20 to 60,000 adult worker bees, around 10 to 30,000 eggs, larvae, and pupae, or whatever it's called, whatever the next stage is. Um, the queen and 8 to 15,000 adult worker hibernate in winter, feeding solely on honey collected during the summer months. Um, and the life cycle of a bee, whatever species there is, because there's a lot of different species of bees, not just the honeybee. So a, regardless of the species, the life cycle of a bee involves the laying of an egg, the development through several molds of a legless larva, and pupation stage during which the insect undergoes complete metamorphosis followed by the emergence of a winged adult so interesting uh, fact about bees the sex of a bee is determined by whether or not the egg is fertilized after mating a female stores the sperm and determines which sex is required at the time each individual egg is laid Fertilized eggs produce female offsprings and unfertilized eggs, males. I think that's so interesting about the bees that actually, like, as they lay eggs, they determine what does the colony need. Do we need more males or more females? And then they decide which eggs to fertilize. I think that's, you know, like, how can a tiny little creature like that have so much logic behind all of their actions? And, um... Talking about logic behind their actions, the etologist Carl von Frisch studied navigation in the honeybee, and he showed that honeybees communicate by the waggle dance, in which a worker indicates the location of a food source to other workers in the hive. He demonstrates that bees can recognize, uh, can recognize a desired compass direction in three different ways, by the sun, by the polarization pattern of the blue sky, and by the Earth's mag magnetic field. He showed that the sun is the preferred or main compass. The other mechanisms are used under cloudy skies or inside a dark beehive. But bees navigate using spatial memory with a rich map-like organization. So as you see, like bees are not just little insects that, oh, whatever, they pollinate the flowers or something. No, like they actually put so much logic behind all of their steps. What kind of bees do we need in the colony, male or female? How do we find the food source? How do we share it with the other bees? So all of these facts have been recorded um, of how bees interact with one another and, and, you know, like how they live in such large colonies. Because can you imagine living in a colony? 
colony of 20,000 to 30 to 60,000 other bees. I think that's pretty insane. So, you know, but I thought it would be fun to also look at a couple of fun facts just so we understand the life of a honeybee a little bit more. Um, again, I don't want it to just be considered another little cre creature that just exists, but I feel like they have so much purpose. You know, they have so much purpose. So a honeybee is the only insect that produces food eaten by men. Think about that. When would a man eat anything else produced by an insect? Never. Honeybees are the only ones that produce a product that's eaten by men. A honeybee can also fly up to six miles and um, for up to six miles and as fast as 15 miles per hour. Hence, it would have to fly around 90,000 miles three times around the globe to make one pound of honey. Can you imagine that? 90,000 miles. We're talking about three times around the globe to make one pound of honey. Um, bees maintain uh, a temperature of 92 to 93 degrees Fahrenheit in their central blood nest, regardless of whether the outside temperature is 110 Fahrenheit or negative 40 Fahrenheit degrees, right? So regardless of the temperature outside, they always maintain the same temperature in their central blood nest. The queen may mate with up to 17 drones over a one to two day period of mating. So, you know, as we say, bees are busy. <laughs> so, as you can see, the queen's always busy. Um, the queen can also lay 600 to 800 or even sometimes 1,500 eggs each day during her three or four year lifetime. This daily egg production may equal her own weight. So she's constantly fed and groomed by attendant worker bees. So the job of worker bees is go around, collect nectar, produce honey, feed the queen, feed the drones, make sure there's new babies coming in every single day. The average honeybee will actually make only one twelfth of a teaspoon of honey in its lifetime. <laughs> Can you imagine one twelfth of a teaspoon? Of honey. So how many bees does it take to fill up that jar of honey that you buy at your local grocery store? Think about that. Um, the honeybee's wings stroke 11,400 times per minute, thus making their distinctive buzz. Can you imagine 11,400 times per minute? A honeybee also visits 50 to 100 flowers during a collection trip. So definitely, like I said, they're very busy, very busy and hardworking. And lastly, the last fact I wanted to share with you, fermented honey, known as met, is the most ancient fermented beverage. And the term honeymoon originated with the Norse practice of consuming large quantities of met during the first month of marriage. Isn't that interesting? Another fun fact is that like, I'm from Bulgaria and in Bulgarian, Honey is simply called met. But now I'm thinking, like, is it because, you know, from ancient cultures, it just means fermented honey? And maybe that's why the word is now met? Like, that's really interesting to me. And the honeymoon fact that, you know, newlyweds would consume a lot of honey during their first month of marriage. <laughs> okay, but enough fun facts, enough history about the bees. 
we all know by now after all of this that bees are not just simple insects they put a lot of logic and effort into a lot of their actions um and they're very strategic as well but you know good for them amazing for them what about us right like how do bees impact us humans and you know what let's talk about money because i feel like a lot of times whenever we talk about different issues in the end of the day, it comes down to money. How much, good or bad, like what is going to be the impact of those actions, whatever they are? Are they going to be good? Are they going to be bad? And how much is the economy going to be impacted? Well, let me tell you how much. Between 235 and 577 billion US dollars worth of annual global pr food production relies on bees contribution can you imagine that i'm going to repeat those numbers because they're large we're talking about 235 and 577 billion us dollars worth of annual global food production that relies on bees contribution and you know with such an impact on the economy it begs the question if these critical insects were public companies for example how might they stack up in the global marketplace? Well, Forbes tells us that. <laughs> and according to Forbes, the market cap or the market value of honeybees alone, we're not talking about bees in general, like all bees, all species of bees in the world. No, we're talking about honeybees alone. So the market value of honeybees alone is estimated to be 20 billion US dollars. Managed honeybees are, um, are the most valuable pollinators in terms of agricultural economics. These hyper-efficient insects can provide pollination to virtually any crop. Almonds, for example, are almost entirely dependent upon honeybee pollination. And without honeybees, the harvest of blueberries, squash, watermelon, and all other fruits would be greatly reduced, driving up prices and disrupting the marketplace. According to USDA, one colony of honeybees is worth 100 times more to the uh, community than to the beekeeper, meaning the value they deliver extends well beyond their actual price. Honey is more than just a byproduct of pollination. The, this sweet nectar serves as an economic driver in its own right, used commercially for food, skin care, anti-aging lotions, medical wound dressings. Over 160 million pounds of honey are produced each year in the United States alone. In 2013, the honey crop was valued at over 300 million US dollars. That's back in 2013. So, you know, honeybees are obviously not the only ones contributing to the economy. There's a lot of other bees that are extremely important for crops and their pollination, but honeybees are definitely um, the ones that hold the biggest chunk of the market value. If they were to be a public company, again, they would be worth 20 billion US dollars. Um, so I wanted to first highlight the economic value before I jump on, you know, to talk about the environment, because I feel like very often we're driven by economy. And the truth is, 
sometimes some environmental decisions and actions could have temporarily or even long-term negative consequences on the economy. Every action takes adjustment, you know, and the economy doesn't adjust as fast as, you know, we could adjust. So sometimes the economy could suffer based on some environmental actions we take. So I first wanted to show you that bees are in fact important for the economy, not just for the environment, not just for us, but for the economy. And if bees were to go extinct, the economy would greatly suffer. Um, it would not be cute. It would not be a cute sight <laughs> like that. I can tell you that much. <laughs> um, you know, but but I also wanted to briefly um, just dive into how they impact the environment. And I'm not going to go into too many details here because I feel like that's a topic that's been talked about so much. So I don't want to like mention all of the environmental uh, benefits that bees contribute to it. But, you know, overall, I think it's safe to say that bees are vital for the preservation of ecological balance and also the biodiversity in nature. They provide one of the most recognizable ecosystem services, pollination, which is what makes food production possible. And by doing so, they protect and maintain ecosystems as well as animal and plant species. And they contribute to genetic and biotic diversity. Bees also act as indicators of the state of the environment. Their presence, absence, or quantity tells us what and when something is happening with the environment and that appropriate action is needed. By observing the development and health of bees, it is possible to ascertain changes in the environment and implement necessary precautionary measures in time. So yes, in fact, a lot of scientists actually use bees' population to determine how good we're doing with the environment. You know, but what is the problem? What exactly is the problem that we're facing? So we know that bees are important. I think that it's very obvious after stating how important historically they've been, how how long humans have had a relationship with bees and, you know, like their economic and environmental impact. So all of us know now bees are important. And that's precisely the problem. They are important. And we can't just say, YOLO, it is what it is, they die, whatever, not, not a big deal, just not an insect. We can't just say that because of how important they are to the economy and the environment. And if bees were all, to all go extinct tomorrow, we ourselves will face ex extinction. Uh, you know, bees play an important role in pollinating flowering plants and are the major type of pollinator in many ecosystems. Again, they're not the only ones. They're also other pollinators, but they're just so efficient that they've created this partnership pretty much with plants that no other species has. Um, and that's why they're so effective and efficient in pollinating flowers. So it is estimated that one third of the human food um, supply depends on pollination by insects, birds, and bats, most of which is accomplished by bees, whether wild or domesticated. So we're talking about one-third of the human food supply that depends on pollination. And over the last half century, 
There has been a general decline in the species' richness of wild bees and other pollinators, probably attributed to, you know, stress from increased parasites and disease. The use of pesticides is a very big problem bees are facing. You know, general decrease in the number of wildflowers as we urbanize more and more areas and, you know, um, pretty much kill entire fields of wildflowers. So that's a big factor as well. Climate change um, is a very big thing that people point fingers to when it comes to, you know, the decline of bees population. So all of these environmental factors definitely play a role when we talk about the decline of bees population. And the number of colonies kept by beekeepers declined slightly through urbanization, systemic pesticide use, mites, which is another um, another type of, I guess, um, creature, I can call it, that feeds off of bees. So that's not a predator that they're facing. And also the closure of beekeeping businesses. Um, so, you know, I don't think that be being a beekeeper is a very popular trait nowadays, unfortunately. And the truth is that unless we have domesticated bees, it is very hard to control the uh, pollination because we pretty much just leave it up to any wild bees out there to do the job and it's just very unreliable and unpredictable whereas when we have actual beekeeping businesses we can predict better um, where we stand with that so in 2006 and 2007 the rate of endangerment increased and was described as colony collapse disorder okay so uh 2006 and 2007 we called this whole problem colony collapse disorder. In 2010, a certain virus and fungus were shown to be in every killed colony. And this virus and fungus were a deadly in combination for the colony. Winter losses increased to about a third. So now more bees were dying off before winter. Mites, as I mentioned, were uh, thought to be responsible for about half of the losses that we saw in bees. Um, again, another predator that they were facing. And apart from colony collapse disorder, losses outside the United States have been attributed to causes including pesticide seed dressings using neonicotinoids. So neonicotinoids are um, a class of neuroactive substances that are used to kill insects chemically that are very similar to nicotine. And this specific substance not only killed insects, you know, that were bad for the plants, they also killed off bees. Um, and obviously that is not good for the plant <laughs> to kill off the bees. Um, so from 2013, the European Union restricted some pesticides to stop bee populations from declining further. And in 2014, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report warned that the bees faced increased risk of extinction because of global warming. In 2018, the European Union decided to ban field use of all three major neonicotinoids, as I mentioned, the substance that would kill bees, essentially, among other insects. And they still remain permitted in uh, greenhouse, vehicle transport usage, and so on. So they're only banned for... Um, 
the actual field, like field use. Farmers have also focused on alternative solutions to mitigate uh, these problems. So, for example, by raising native plants, they provide food for native bee pollinators, leading to less reliance on honeybee uh, populations. As I mentioned, honeybees are not native to the United States, for example. So the more native plants we have that native bees can pollinate, uh, the more, again, reliable and controlled this could be. Agricultural leaders understood both the economic and ecological importance of pollinators. And each season, these insects provide a service that boosts harvest size and quality, creates value for farmers, and drives the global food supply. It's hard to imagine an ecosystem where bees are absent, right? Like It's very hard to think that bees could just not exist without pollinators, more than 39 different crops would see a decline in production. In order to meet demand, farmers would be forced to pursue more intensive and less environmentally sustainable practices. Because think about it, this relationship between bees and plants is one of the very few preserved natural relationships, right? When you think about that, Nowadays, we have so much processed food. So many things are machine-made. Not just food, but supplies and everything else. So many things are machine-made. That this is a very rare instance of something still happening naturally. It's a natural process. So obviously, anything that we try to replace it with would be less beneficial to the environment. Because right now, it, a little bee buzzing around from plant to plant does not harm the environment. But if we had to use machines and different chemicals and other methods, that would start harming the environment, right? So that's something very important to think about. More land would likely be needed to match the current production levels. Farming these greater land masses would result in greater Carbon emissions, for example, from the increased operation of tractors and other machinery. And by expanding uh, the physical footprint of farms, organisms in wild habitats would risk being displaced and disrupted. So why would we need to expand the farmland, you ask? Well, like I mentioned, this process, this relationship between bees and plants is one that has taken years and years of co-evolution both have adjusted to one another the plants and the bees have evolved to work together so if we were to replace the bees if there were no bees plants would not pollinate as fast Um, so it would take larger land to accommodate for the production levels needed you know so these tiny insects definitely play a very large role in the, the preservation of our ecosystem and economy, helping agriculture grow enough while using fewer natural resources. So, you know, let's, let's just think about it for a moment. What would happen if all bees died? Like tomorrow we wake up and there are no bees in the world. What would happen? Well, if all of the world's bees died off, there would be major rippling effect throughout the ecosystem. A number of plants, such as many of the bee orchids, are pollinated exclusively by specific bees, and they would die off without human intervention. This would alter the uh, composition of their habitats and affect the food webs 
they are part of and would likely trigger additional extinctions or declines of dependent organisms. And obviously from there, other plants may use a variety of pollinators, but many are most successfully pollinated by bees. And without bees, they would set fewer seeds and would have lower reproductive success. This too would alter the ecosystems. And you know, beyond plants, many animals, such as, for example, the beautiful bee-eater birds, um, would lose their prey in the event of a die-off. And this would also impact natural systems and food webs that those animals are a part of. If all of the world bees died off, there would be a major rippling effect throughout different ecosystems. A number of plants, such as, uh, you know, a lot of other plants that depend specifically like on honeybees or on other different species of bees, would just be left to die off. And as I mentioned, if there was a human intervention to protect those plants, for example, from extinction as well, we would definitely see a major negative environmental impact um, in that. So, you know, I don't want to leave it off hanging on a very bad note. There is definitely light in the tunnel. Uh, all of our efforts have somewhat paid off and we have seen the bee population recover in multiple different areas in the world. I couldn't find one specific statistic to show um, to show you specifically because this largely depends on the individual efforts that different countries decided to take to save the bees. So I didn't want to go into too many details of how each individual country has done it. But overall, one example I found that all countries could relate to is COVID. While the pandemic has been extremely terrible for humans, it has shown to be pretty beneficial for some wildlife, and that includes bees. In China, the coronavirus pandemic has accounted for a reduction of carbon dioxide emissions by 25%. In the Philippines, the, uh, the capital city skyline of Manila has emerged from a cloud of smog. So, you know, the view is being admired for the first time in decades. According to NASA, motor vehicle pollution has fallen by one-third in the northeastern United States since restrictions began in mid-March. And with this reduction in travel and commuting, it's not just the air that has cleared up. Wild animals have been enjoying more of our shared terrain, right, by themselves. Um, because we have to think about it. We oftentimes just kind of intersect into their territory without really caring. And so like now for the first time in a very long time, they've been able to just go out there in the wild without being disturbed. And out of all creatures enjoying the biggest home alone celebration, the bee has the most to celebrate. The current COVID-19 lockdown is helping to reverse the sharp decline in bee populations in two significant ways. Fewer fumes um, and pollution particles from automobiles, for example, means that the bees can more easily smell floral scents that lead them to plants that need pollination. Another reason that the bee population may be recovering is that, as the BBC noted, fewer cars on the road means other benefits for the bees too. The number of bee deaths uh, is likely to fall as car journeys decrease during the lockdown. 
brown notes. A 2015 study by Canadian researchers estimated that 25 billion bees and wasps are killed by vehicles on the road across North America every year. So, you know, something as simple as just driving less could save the bees. <laughs> but, you know, how can you help? If you're interested, how um, could you contribute to saving the bees? You know, we still have a long way to go. As I said, we've been making great progress with all these efforts we're putting in. It once again comes down to simply being more aware of our actions and the consequences our actions have. Like we discussed in the previous episode, it can be very fast and simple to bring species to the brink of extinction. And it can take decades and sometimes even centuries for them to recover. So it's great that people are take, you know, talking about the bees, taking all these actions, being more conscious, but we need to continue this effort. We can't just stop and say, okay, we're done. We're good now, right? Like, no, we have to continue this effort because it's an effort to simply coexist. Just like many ancient cultures have done, as I mentioned um, in my little history lesson, they've all coexisted with bees. They've all benefited from bees and they've kept them alive. They've helped them develop. So we need to continue doing the same. So what could you do? Well, one thing you could do is you could plant a bee garden. Um, and now this doesn't mean that you have to be a beekeeper by no means. Like this just means having little flowers that welcome wild bees. Um, and that would definitely keep wild bees alive. Just being able to travel from plant to plant to collect nectar. And this could literally be something as simple as having a couple of flowers in your backyard or even in your balcony definitely doesn't mean creating an entire beehive colony or whatever in your backyard. No, but just being more bee friendly. Uh, I know some people are afraid, some people are allergic, so that's normal. Like I'm not saying everyone needs to have flowers in their balcony or backyard to welcome bees, but if you could, that would be a nice thing to do. A very big thing you could do is just go chemical-free for the bees. So synthetic pesticides, fertilizers, herbicides, you know, like I mentioned, those neonicotinoids or whatever they're called, all of these are harmful for the bees. So if you do have flowers uh, and different plants in your yard or in your balcony, be mindful of what products you use on those flowers. Because if a bee came to uh, pollinate your flowers they could suffer, they could die from, from those chemicals. So it's very important to be mindful of that. And of course, if you wanted to do something bigger and be like more involved, like hands-on involved, you can always help with fundraisers. You could always support local beekeepers and organizations. You know, when you go to the farmer's market, maybe buy your jar of honey from a local beekeeper instead of buying it from the supermarket that's Important probably it's not going to taste as good um, and it's not going to be of ha as high quality as the one in the farmer's market. So those are some other things you could do um, to support that community as well. Okay, well, before I let you all go, I still have something very important to say. And I saved, again, the best for last. And of course, I'm talking about conspiracy. <laughs> And this is going to be super quick because I found two theories that I I just think they're hilarious. And, you know, maybe they're true. Who knows? That's why they're in the conspiracy segment. Everything's true until proven otherwise, I would say. 
<laughs> but you know it could be it could be true so let me start with the first one because i think that is so hilarious about 2.5 million years ago humans uh, or you know humanids as as they call it broke away from their apes by developing from the apes by developing bigger brains right like that's the biggest difference we develop bigger brains something happened to those early humanids uh, that enlarged their gray matter even more and they developed the mental you know the mental capacity that separated them from animals researchers believe that food in particular honey played a big uh, part in the evolution of this human trademark though honey is certainly not the only thing that nourished brain power there's a strong argument that it's uh, properties acted like a booster booster so apart from other critical foods like meat honey had glucose and dense energy that were perfect for brain development back then the only available source was wild honey and that was even better the wild variety is packed with bee larva pieces uh, pieces uh, minerals vitamins fat and protein so you really get like the raw honey experience. There is no evidence of honey-enriched brain in the fossil record, but looking at people and apes today suggests that the theory is sound. Wild honey remains a huge part of several tribal diets around the world. Primates also continue to use inventive ways, tools um, included to break into beehives. So, like I said, this could be true because as we see, bees have been part of our lives for a very long time. We find a lot of uh, clues in ancient um, cultures that they have interacted with bees. So it could very much be that honey has been a product that we've all used um, pretty much since the beginning we evolved into being the humans we are today. And maybe it did contribute to us getting bigger, better brains right? So if you want to be smarter, I would say start eating some more honey, right? That could maybe help you become smarter. <laughs> okay, so the second theory. The great dinosaur extinction event is a well-known fact that happened around 65 million years ago. Images of giant creatures like Tyrannosaurus rex uh, dying in the disaster, thought to be a space impact, make it easy to forget that other non-dinosaur species also perished. One of them may have been the ancestors of today's uh, carpenter bees. In 2013, a study looked at the, uh, the carpenter bees' DNA and found something unexpected. A genetic anomaly possibly showed the effect of the dinosaur extinction event on the carpenter bee lineage. Four kinds of these bees showed the exact same thing. Around 65 million years ago, evolution stopped dead. No genetic diversity happened for close to 10 million years. To scientists, something like this indicates a mass extinction inside a species history. The similar timing suggests that the bees were wiped out during the same disaster that crushed the dinosaurs and 80% of all Earth's species. So yeah, as you guys heard, as you guys heard, bees could be very well an indicator of when the actual dinosaur extinction happened. 
Um, and you know, I find the second theory actually very plausible because like I mentioned previously, we do use bees as an indicator of how well we're doing with the environment. Their quantity, the you know the, the, the number of colonies, how big the colonies are, how well they behave, how fast they pollinate, all their behavior, all their life cycle, everything about the bees can indicate how well an environment is doing. So I very much believe that it's possible to to say um, when the dinosaur extinction happened based on seeing those results from the specific um, ancestor of the carpenter bees. And, you know, like, I, I feel like maybe we could even predict future extinctions by being just a little more aware of, of how the bees are doing and, and what their behavior exactly is. <laughs> so what do you guys think about the bees? <laughs> I can certainly tell you that Going into this episode, I didn't think I would find so much information, you know, enough to create an entire episode, <laughs> but I was very pleasantly supply surprised. I think that bees are incredibly interesting, um, and personally, I could not live without honey, so I myself would go 100% extinct if all bees died out. <laughs> I would probably be like one of the first waves of, of creatures to to go extinct after the bees so you know if you have any other fun facts that you want to share with me let me know you can always reach me on my instagram or my twitter let me know of anything else that you would like to share about the honeybees or any other bees and i'll be more than happy to share it with this little cute community that we have built for ourselves isn't funny like we're pretty much like the the honeybees we just create little communities of interests and kind of stick together and support each other and work together to for for a specific cause just like the honeybees work to create honey pretty much but you know if there's anything you want to take away from this episode maybe that bees are in fact busy they are in fact very hardworking um and very logical and strategic creatures so i definitely don't see them as insects anymore i see them as much more so stay tuned for next week's episode we're gonna talk about earth overshoot day what is it when does it happen does it happen every year when does it land this year you know we're running low on natural resources but how low um you know we'll talk about all of that and more I'll see y'all then. Bye.